Well, good morning. It is a great joy to actually be speaking to a room with some people in it instead of just to a screen. Those of you who have been preaching during this time know how difficult that is. And just to see the smiles on your faces is a wonderful encouragement to a preacher. So thank you for coming and being here. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us Jesus. And we thank you that in your word he is proclaimed to us and all that he has done for us. We pray this morning you might inflame our love for him, our joy in our salvation, and our determination to honour you with all of our lives. And this we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, the Bible spends a lot of time talking about our families and the importance of love and honour in our families. Of course, families have been regularly torn apart since the fall. The first great sin after the fall in the Garden of Eden was a brother turning against a brother and killing him. Noah's sons were, well, they dishonoured him and received the judgment that followed. The families of the great patriarchs were hardly models of loving, generous family life, were they? I mean, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob, Joseph and his brothers... King David's family was a mess, and more than one king in the history of the divided kingdom was bumped off by members of his own family. But still, families are valued, and God himself draws a direct link between our behaviour within our families and life as a believer. Honour your father and your mother, God commanded on Mount Sinai. Paul would later call it the first command with a promise that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Fathers, do not provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Proverbs is full of advice for family life. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. And there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. And they cannot expect anything but disaster. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Rather gruesome, isn't it? And Paul tells Timothy, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The point is those relationships... And the honour due because of those relationships matters. They matter to God and they ought to matter to us. As in other areas of what it means to be a human being, we see in Jesus perfectly this love and respect of his family, particularly his parents. In Luke 2, when the 12-year-old Jesus was preoccupied in the temple and his parents, after three days of searching for him, find him there, Jesus explained, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But Luke then goes on to say that he went down from Jerusalem with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And at the other end of the gospel story, when Jesus hangs on the cross, he strangely, I guess strangely at least to us, makes provision for his grieving mother from the cross. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, 
Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. There should be no doubt at all that Jesus cared for his mother. He was not a stranger to family love, nor was he a stranger to the obligation to honour and provide for those closest to us. So what are we to make of the incident that comes next in our journey through Matthew's Gospel? The little paragraph at the end of Matthew chapter 12. You remember it had been an eventful day for Jesus, the healing of the demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, the amazement of the crowd, the challenge of the Pharisees, who first explained what had happened by claiming that Jesus himself was demonic, that he was in league with the demons, that the work of the spirit was actually the work of the devil himself, and then a little later demanded Jesus establish his credentials by providing the kind of sign that they would approve of. And Jesus answered them, and he taught them, and at the same time he taught the crowd of people who had got around and heard all this. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. And anyway, don't you understand what is happening before your eyes? Something more than Jonah, whose preaching turned one of the greatest cities of the known world upside down. Something greater than Solomon, whose wisdom had drawn the Queen of the South to come from the ends of the earth to hear it. An evil generation that is leaving itself open to incredible danger. And it was while Jesus was in the middle of this, while he was still answering the false charges of the scribes and Pharisees and still teaching and warning the crowds, that this strange little incident is recorded. Would you follow on with me from Matthew 12, verse 46? While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking to speak to you. And answering, he said to, one, to the one who had told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Uh, this little incident is sandwiched between the confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees and the great parables of Matthew 13. It would be very easy, be very easy just to skip over it. It doesn't on the surface seem to add much to what Jesus has been saying, just a minor interruption, a distraction. We'll just quickly move on. But I hope you'll see with me this morning that this is a very important incident and it is immensely encouraging. We should notice what it says about Jesus' earthly family, what it says about Jesus himself, and what it says about us. So firstly, the family of Jesus. Perhaps this was not the first time members of Jesus' family had tracked him down and wanted a word. Mark's Gospel records that when the crowd started to press in on Jesus and when he'd selected his 12 apostles, his family came out to seize him, believing him to be out of his mind. 
They would protect him from himself and for the problem he was causing for himself. It was all getting out of hand and he didn't even have space to eat properly. John's Gospel simply tells us that not even his brothers believed in him. And perhaps that's what we're meant to understand by the strange little expression that's repeated in this paragraph. His mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak to him. They are outside, literally, but probably at this moment spiritually as well. They were not inside listening to him, sitting at his feet. They were outside expecting him to come out and join them. Sure, they're concerned, they sought him out, but they do not yet believe him. They stay outside in the place of indecision at a distance. But whether outside or in, they want to speak to him. They're intruding themselves into this situation. They expect him to come out, to to leave the crowd behind and come to them. He needs to hear what they have to say to him. They want him to leave off speaking to the crowds. He can speak to them any time, but we're here now. It's time to come out and talk with us. There is a higher call on his time and energy, a higher loyalty than what is going on with this motley crew. They had a kind of proprietary attitude towards Jesus. He's ours first. He belongs with us, belongs to us. And Jesus knows it. So far from being distracted, far from breaking off and being called away, Jesus uses this moment, this intriguing development, to teach something valuable. The chapter doesn't tell us that Jesus refused to speak to them. We don't know whether, after finishing what he had to say to the crowds, he went out and did speak to his mother and brothers. What we do know is that while his brothers might not yet believe in him, they would in time. His brother James would become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The letter of Jude is written by one who doesn't parade his physical connection to Jesus, but passionately believes that Jesus is the only one we can trust when all around us is confusion and betrayal. And we do know that Jesus, as we've seen, put his mother under the care of one of his disciples. So perhaps it was this little interchange that played a role in moving members of his family from unbelief to faith. We'll never know. We don't know. We're not told. It's a little like the parable of the prodigal son, isn't it? For a moment, we're just left wondering, will they stay outside or will they come in? Will they? Won't they? And we hope. Jesus' question is not a repudiation of his family but are pointed at something with far-reaching consequences. Who has the prior, deeper, richer call on me at this moment? Jesus is asking. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon put it, he does not reject the tender ties of his human nature, but rather exhibits their true position. They are loved, and as we've seen, they will be saved as well. But for the moment, there was something even more important, even more wonderful that he has to do and has to say. But before we get there, 
I wonder whether you noticed something intriguing as I read those verses just a moment ago. It's there in the very last sentence. It's something about Jesus himself. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus speaks of both his Father in heaven and his brother, sister, mother on earth. He is genuinely the son of his father, my father in heaven, but he is also at the very same time the brother and son of these concrete human beings. It's the very same truth that the creeds would later try to express by saying he's utterly God and utterly human. He is himself the bridge between heaven and earth. He has a father in heaven and brothers on earth. He is our Lord, but he's also our kinsman. The writer of the Hebrews would later say he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And even he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus identifies with those before him. They are his brothers and sisters and mother. But at the same time, here in the one sentence, he could speak of his father in heaven. He is uniquely related to the father. Not our father in heaven, did you notice? My father in heaven. He came to do the will of his father. He came to share the words of his father. He came to bring us to his father. One with us and one with his father in heaven. God, because only God can save us from our sins. Our brother, because it must be our sins from which he saves us. It's not an incidental little distraction, is it? It is something of deep and lasting significance. It's not spelt out in all its fullness in these verses, that's true. We have the rest of the New Testament to do that. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He is the one by whom, through whom and for whom all things were made. And as the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But in this one little sentence, that same great truth is heard as well. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. But friends, wonderfully encouraging and rich as that great truth is, since it is the ground by which we, he is both able to save us and genuinely saves us, there's something else. And that's what he has to say about those who follow him, those who listen to his voice, who put his words into practice. For central to this little paragraph is not what it says about Jesus' earthly family, the mother and brothers who stood outside seeking to speak to him, nor even what he says almost in passing about himself as the one who has the Father in heaven as his father and men and women on earth as his brother, sister, mother. Central to this passage is what Jesus says about those gathered before him that day. The crowd who wanted to hear his words and were transformed by those words into faithful disciples. 
It's what he says about those who today follow their example, what he says about us. You want to know who my brother, sister and mother are? He asked the person who brought him the message. And then he stretched out his hands to his disciples and said, Behold, my, bro- my mother and my brothers. It's an extraordinary thing to say when you think about it. Jesus identified himself with these ordinary people. There is something about these people that gives them a priority even over the physical family of Jesus who stood outside waiting for him to finish what he was doing. And Jesus spelled out what it was. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. Fundamentally, the will of his Father in heaven is that they should believe. It's John's Gospel where we find Jesus spelling that out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Those who trust in him, who abandon their self-trust and instead trust in him, they are the ones who do the will of his Father. They are the ones who are truly his brother and sister and mother. These are they that have the priority on his time and his energy and his effort and his commitment. It's a similar idea to what we're told in the very beginning of John's Gospel, isn't it? He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. It's not something they've earned in John's Gospel. The emphasis is it's a gift. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Not becomes as a result of doing all of this. Not may become with a little more effort not even will become as a final crowning endorsement of all their lifetime achievement, but such a person is Jesus' brother and sister and mother now, even as they learn. Yet this believing demonstrates itself in doing the will of the Father, the one who listens to what the Father wants us to know and who does it belongs to Jesus. Such a person really is a disciple of Jesus. And more than that, they are his brother, sister and mother. And did you notice the whoever? This is a wide open category. It's not an elite group. There's no condition that must be satisfied before you can even qualify. No exam you must pass before you can begin. Just do the will of the Father. Trust in the one who has come to save his people from their sins. Just hear these words of Jesus and do them. Whatever your background, whatever your status, or sex, or skills, or gifts, or education, or occupation, put the things Jesus taught into practice and you will demonstrate that you are, really are, genuinely are, the children of God my brother, sister, mother. Now stop for a moment and think what a wonderful privilege that is. To be Jesus' brother or sister is to share in his relation with his father. It's the great idea that the New Testament sums up with the word adoption. 
It's one of the great spiritual blessings God's given us in Christ Jesus, according to Paul in Ephesians 1. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This little paragraph in Matthew 12 reminds us that those who listen to Jesus, those who trust Jesus, have this enormous privilege. We share in his relation to his Father. We can call God our Father and grow in our understanding of him as Father as we sit at the feet of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, we are his brothers and sisters and mother. You see, you're not just a theological student. It's not the most important thing about you. Probably never thought it was, but it's not. You're not just a preacher or a pastor or a gospel worker or even a member of this congregation. All of those things are important, of course, but they're not the most important thing about you. What is the astonishing truth about you and about me is that Jesus has owned us as part of his family. The Father has claimed us as his own. The Spirit has enfolded us in a love that is the highest possible priority in the universe. This is not a paragraph about disowning family. And though it is richly suggestive of this, it's not primarily a paragraph about the identity of Jesus either. It's about the new family he is creating and of which we are a part. The arrival of Jesus' physical, natural mother and brothers that day outside, at a suitable distance from the crowd, afforded him the opportunity to teach those in front of him and us this wonderful truth of our new identity, our membership of his family. On a day when Jesus had been talking about a wicked generation, that had exposed itself to unspeakable danger by its rejection of Jesus. He also spoke of those he had rescued from this wicked generation, those who believe and are now his new family. So then, if that is true, how do we value the natural families God has given us while remembering we are now part of another family? the family of Christ. Well, it was the old wily bishop of Hippo, Augustine, who perhaps said it best. Follow Jesus' own reasoning, he said. Get the order right. You will only love your parents as they need to be loved, as God requires you to love them when you do not put them before him. That will not always be easy, in fact, for some of us, it will be very hard because it will bring conflict and even tension, as Jesus says elsewhere. But we have been made part of another family. The family, Jesus says, has priority. His heavenly father is our heavenly father, my heavenly father. And we are all brothers and sisters. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the great truth that we have been made part of your family. We could never have deserved it. We could never have earned it. But you have called us, drawn us in, and you have made us your own. Would you please enable us to get the order right? 
and to live in a way that honours you. As many of us begin with new families of our own, help us to keep the order right and so love our physical families as we should. For we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.